on this Reformation Sunday, I think it's good uh, to not only look at the doctrinal matters, but also to look at the, how these doctrinal matters apply to our hearts and lives, because they're pivotal, they're pivotal matters. Uh, the five souls of the Protestant Reformation have been used time and time again to describe what we call the core beliefs of Protestantism or of biblical Protestantism because we have cultural Protestantism, we have political Protestantism. But what I am interested in and what this pulpit is all about is biblical Protestantism. What is biblical Protestantism all about? So here are the, the five core uh, uh, beliefs of it. One, sola scriptura. That, that's pivotal, scripture alone. As I said this morning, if you can't prove it from the Bible, it shouldn't be in church or you shouldn't have it in your life. Two, sola gratia. That just simply means grace alone. It's not your works and God's grace. It's grace alone. Billy Graham once said that salvation was 99% of God and 1% of man. And the 1% of man was his decision. But that cannot be right. It's either all of grace or it's not of God at all. Because salvation is of the Lord. It's all of grace. Sola fide, it's by faith alone. Solus Christus, it's by Christ alone. And soli Deo Gloria, it, it's to the glory of God alone. So these biblical concepts, uh, they are to be taken as a whole. This word alone has, I think, confused many people over the years because it nearly seems contradictory. If you have one alone, then surely you don't need four other alones. But the point is they're all interconnected and they're all interdependent. So you can't take one out and dispense with the other four. You, you look at them in their totality. So for example, when we talk about sola scriptura, we're not seeking to keep out grace alone because the scriptures teach us about grace alone and faith alone. The reformers instead were trying to keep out unbiblical tradition. As I said, unbiblical tradition. It's not all tradition that's wrong. It's the vain tradition that's wrong. It's the, the unbiblical tradition that's wrong. So the five solas were developed in response to the errors of the Roman church in the, in the dark Middle Ages. And they were meant to redefine biblical Protestantism on those great fundamentals of the Christian faith. Now they don't cover everything. And it would be impossible in such a summary to cover everything. But if you know these five solas, you're able to defend adequately the, the Christian Reformed faith in any given scenario. So it's important that we know them. This is not just something that's a relic of history. This is important for 2022, the day and age that we live in. Contrary to the claims of the modern day ecumenists and the new evangelicals the church of Rome brethren and sisters has not changed we were thinking this morning of the Marian cult within the Roman Catholic Church it's still there though it manifested itself in the 6th century it took probably 300 years to get to that place in the 6th century it's still there our Roman Catholic neighbours they're still praying the rosary today it's not a relic of bygone days. It's still there today. It hasn't changed. Rome cannot change. Rome cannot change. And whilst many in, in her ranks, they speak about the scriptures, the, the, what they call the evangelicals or the charismatics, 
within Romanism, they speak about the scriptures and how they, they meet in study groups, etc. They can never speak of scripture alone. Because they can only interpret scripture through the interpretation of the church and through the traditions of the church and through the writings of the church fathers. So any Roman Catholic that's reading the Bible has to read the Bible in conjunction with how the Church of Rome interprets it, how the early fathers interpret it, how a, the, the papacy gives them their understanding of it, and so on. When Rome talks about the scriptures, well, she adds to the scriptures. She adds the traditions of the fathers. She adds the authority of the papal see and the papal chair. As Protestants, when we talk about the authority of the scriptures, we can say it's the Bible alone. It's the Bible alone. If it's not proved by the Bible alone, we shouldn't have it, we shouldn't believe it, we shouldn't be following it. And when we talk about grace alone, we're not adding on to it your decision or my decision. We're not adding on to it your works or my works. What you do, what you pay. We're not adding on to any of those things. We're just talking about grace alone. By grace are you saved. Alone. It's not a wonderful truth to believe as Christians. Just by grace alone. Grace. The unmerited. The undeserved favour of Almighty God. Towards those least deserving of it. So the five souls define what the gospel is. And they tell us what must be believed. In order for souls to be saved. Uh, and you cannot get to heaven without resting your soul upon these truths. There are, there are many who take the name Protestant, of course, and as I've often said here, uh, they, they do not know the core truths of biblical Protestantism. Uh, and they cherry-pick what they want to believe from Protestantism. But if you're a Bible-believing Protestant, these are the core beliefs. I can live by them, brethren and sisters. I can live by these five core beliefs. And I can die by them. I couldn't say that about the politics. I couldn't say that about the culture. But I can say that about these five core beliefs. They're enough to live by. And they're all we need to die by. Centre to it all, of course, is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Terry Johnson, I'd recommend his little book, The Case for Traditional Protestantism. Uh, he, he said that when the, the reformers spoke of solus Christus, they were referring primarily to three things about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've just taken them as a simple outline. And we're going to look at them again tonight. Because that's all we need to know. So these are three foundational, fundamental facts of our understanding concerning the Saviour. First of all, he is our only Saviour. There's none other. In John's Gospel, chapter 14 and verse 6, we read and emphasised to you that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Christianity is not all-inclusive, brethren and sisters. It's not your way, my way and everybody else's way and we'll all get there at the end because we'll all have our own way to go Christianity is exclusive it defines one way 
And that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. You needn't start to argue with anybody when they say, well, what's right for you is what's right for you, and what's right for me is what's right for me. That might uh, come into fair or, or come into our understanding what you wear, what you think, where you go. But when it comes to the matter of the soul, when it comes to the matter of salvation, here is a definitive dividing point. There's only one Saviour. One and one only, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is uh, the bedrock of traditional biblical Protestantism. So the written word of God reveals to us. The written word of God reveals to us. Not the tradition of the fathers. Not what somebody has handed me down. The Bible teaches it. Therefore we're mandated to believe it. That the plan of salvation has at its very heart the incarnation of the Son of God. He was not a mere man. He was much more than a mere man. He was in reality God-man. He was the God-man. The second person of the divine trinity united to human flesh. He is the God-man. And what he does is not just of national, tribal importance, but it is of universal eternal importance it's only through Christ that we can know the meaning of life we have spent a lot of time over the past year year and a half looking at the Sermon on the Mount we'll come back to it very very soon but this Sermon on the Mount records the, the, the core teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ he taught us that our aim in all religion is not to please man it is to please God True piety is not external. That was the religion of the Pharisees, the washing of the hands, the ordinances, their clothing, their garments, and, and all the particulars that went with it. True piety is not external, it is internal. And as evangelical Protestants, we need to emphasize that again and again and again. It is not evangelical externals that tell me that you're on the way to heaven it's what you are internally. That's the evidence of whether you're on the way to heaven or not. Uh, he taught us that we're to trust in God. Not in material things or not in material possessions. We're to seek first the kingdom of God. Try to tell that to prosperous middle class Ulster. But even, I'm saying it again, didn't Jesus say, seek first the kingdom of heaven. Seek first the kingdom of heaven. If we want to understand life, well, we understand it through the Lord Jesus Christ. His teachings also included all of those wonderful parables, earthly stories with heavenly meanings. When they came to arrest him, they said of Christ, never man speak like this man. The meaning of life is further seen in what he claimed of those who followed him. And what he promised those who came to him and the gracious invitations that he issued. I was thinking of that this afternoon. What did he promise those who would come to him? Jesus said, come. Come. Matthew 11, verse 28 to 30. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Isn't the Lord wonderful? He asks us to come unto him. And what wonderful invitations he has given unto us. When we consider the, the testimony of the life of Christ, we, we can see further the unique and supernatural 
uh, qualities which he possessed. He touched the lives of countless ordinary people. There are some people who touch your lives, uh, but they're just few. We have to be honest, they're just few. You think on the, on the long years some of you have lived, and the ones that have touched your lives, they've just been a few, but they have left their mark upon your life. But Jesus touched the lives of multitudes. There was something special about this man. He could talk to a member of the Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin, Nicodemus, who came in fear and trembling to talk to him by night. And he left him a changed man. He touched his life. He can talk to a woman caught in adultery. Others were going to stone her and put her to death. But the Lord Jesus showed mercy to her. She never was the same again. He said, go and, and sin no more. He talked to an arrogant, rich, young ruler one day. This young man thought he had everything and knew everything. But the Lord Jesus brought him down very low. He touched his life. He trained 12 men who were just ordinary apostles, ordinary fishermen. And he called them to be apostles. And he made them the foundation of the New Testament church. He knew how to answer wisely his adversaries. They came to ensnare him and entrap him. All of the doctors of the law, the scribes and the Pharisees. But they couldn't gainsay his wisdom. What miraculous powers they witnessed time and time again. He had power over nature. He had power over death. He had power over sickness. It is said by Warfield that sickness was banished from Galilee during his earthly sojourn there. What about Philippians chapter 2 verse 5 to 8 from, from where we have been reading. Philippians chapter 2. The life of Christ is just put into two summaries here. Two very simple little summaries. His humiliation. His birth to his death. His exaltation. And this was everything from the resurrection and onwards. In his humiliation the Lord Jesus Christ. He humbled himself. He became as a worm and no man. He was subject to the law of God. And he kept it all perfectly. He subjected himself to God's law. Which he kept perfectly. Sometimes as parents. Even as grandparents. We make laws for our children. And we know fine well. They can't keep them. But God's inflexible law. Jesus kept. Perfectly. He endured the afflictions and miseries of this life. He knew what it was to be cold, to be hungry, to have nowhere at night to lay his head. He, he knew all of those things. He knew deprivation. He knew rejection, even rejection uh, by his own immediate family. He knew the hostility of sinners. Even his own neighbours at Nazareth, they were going to stone him and put him to death. He knew the uh, enmity of Satan from his very earliest childhood when Herod came with his men and there was, in, there was infanticide in Bethlehem and dozens were put to death in order that this little infant Christ would be put to death as well did he not meet with Satan in the wilderness and he met with him at Calvary. As all the dark forces of hell arrayed themselves against the Son of God. This was his humiliation. 
In his exaltation, he was raised from the dead. He was kept under the power of death, but just for a short time. And he rose triumphantly. The victory sounded. The trumpet sounded. And he rose in that same body in which he was nailed to the cross. And he is no longer subject to death. We see him ascending up into heaven. And the angels told the disciples that were watching on this same Jesus as ye have seen go. Will so come in like manner as ye have seen him go. He's coming back. And in heaven he's reigning. And he's ruling. And he's overseeing all of the battles of his church. And all of those battles down through the ages. The Lord Jesus is going to triumph on that final day. One commentator eloquently put it in this manner when he wrote of the humiliation and exaltation of Christ. He said, all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings and queens that ever reigned put together have not affected our life as much as that one solitary life. He's the only saviour. Secondly, He's the only sacrifice. That's important. It is true, of course, to declare that if Jesus is the only saviour of sinners, then by his death on the cross of Calvary is the only way of salvation. There's only one sacrifice for sin. And the Bible teaches us that that sacrifice is the sacrifice of Christ. God could not turn his face away from sin. Every sin that was broken had to be punished. I think we forget that. As if we imagine God could turn away his, his mind, his eye from sin and from those that sin and break his law. God has never done that. The soul that sinneth it shall die. We read in Ezekiel 18 and 4. Behold, all souls are mine, as the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son of mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Not just die physically, die eternally. And die under the judgment of God for all eternity. I was thinking yesterday about a judgment spent for eternity. A judgment of God that is eternal. Sometimes we have to punish others. Sometimes we have to be punished. But it's not forever. But the punishment of God for breaking his law is forever. And ever. And ever. And there's no mitigation of it whatsoever. Not only did the law demand punishment and death for the transgressor. But to obtain forgiveness it necessitated death. The soul that sinneth had to die. Breaking the law of God brought death upon the head of the transgressor. But forgiveness also of the guilty required the death of the innocent. When Jesus died on the cross, he was the great sin sacrifice. He was dying in the room instead of his people. He was dying in the room instead of all who were counted into that great elect number of the people of God. He was dying there for them. 
The Bible teaches us that his death was substitutionary. Jesus understood this very clearly. He taught it in Mark 10, 45, Mark 14, verse 24. The, the great apostle wrote to the Gentiles uh, and he emphasized the substitutionary nature of the death of Christ. We hear Paul in the book of Romans and he taught about Adam being the federal head of the human race. And so he talked about Christ being the, the federal head of his own people. And in covenant with God, he represented his own people. He was our representative. He stood in our place. He was standing in your place and my place when he stood before Pilate. When they nailed him to that cross of Calvary, he was taking your place and my place. When he bowed his head and gave up the ghost, he was dying in your place. On my place. The Bible teaches us very clearly concerning the penal nature of the death of Christ. So, by penal, we mean it has to do with the legal punishment for crimes committed. That's an important theological point. In other words, the penalty required for breaking the law of God. And as our substitute, he bore all of the judicial penalty that sin deserved. And what the law required. And it's quite amazing to think. That all of the demands of the law. They were all fulfilled in Christ. In him alone. In Romans chapter 8 verse 3. We're, we're taught how God condemned sin in the flesh. That is in the person of our saviour. And this means that he rendered that judicial verdict. Condemning the sin of sinners. The sinless one became the sin offering. And this he did on his people's behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It was Martin Luther who first coined that wonderful uh, phrase about the exchange that took place on the cross. He became our substitute. We obtained his righteousness. He died and we obtained life. We need to let all of the impact of of that substitutionary work sink into our hearts. Because by nature. We want to get to heaven. Not on our own. We really don't. We want to get to heaven by our own. Not by grace alone. We want to get to heaven by our own works. By our own strivings. By our own efforts. <clears throat> Just as I quoted you Billy Graham. 99% grace. 1% the decision. It wouldn't have mattered if it had been the other way around. 99% of the one decision, 1% of grace. It has to be 100% grace. It has to be all of God. Or it means nothing. Because it was Christ alone who could pay that penalty, not you and I. Fanny Crosby, she tells the story of how God renewed her assurance. She had sunk into a lack of assurance and even though her life revolved around the Lord, she always felt there was something lacking in her life. And it was just assurance. And it was at the cross where God gave her that assurance. So that's why it's good for Christians to come to gospel preaching. And that's why it's good for Christians to understand more and more about the, the death and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1851, at the age of 31, in a meeting in a church, 
She recalled the incident. She said, after the prayer, the congregation began to sing that grand old hymn, Alas, and did my Saviour bleed, and did my Saviour die? And then she reached the third line of the fifth verse where it says, Here, Lord, I give myself away. And she simply said, In light of all that Christ had done for me, I surrendered to the Saviour. He had died that I might live. And I gave my all to him. And she said, My very soul was flooded with celestial light that very moment. You'll never be anything. Until you know the cross. Alas and did my saviour bleed and did my sovereign die. Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I. And when you get to that place of assurance it was for me. He really died for me. And when you venture your soul's belief upon it. You'll get that same assurance that Fanny Crosby had. In that meeting. The sacrifice is final. How I'm glad the Lord Jesus. His sacrifice finished all the sacrifices. Today across our land. There will have been thousands. Thousands of masses. That have been performed. And they're all fraudulent. Every one of them is fraudulent. Because Jesus finished all the sacrifices. There's no bloodless sacrifice. There was only one bloody sacrifice. And it was the blood of God's own dear son that destroyed Satan on his claims and sin's demands over us forever. At the cross. It's at the cross where you'll see the light. Tell me tonight, have you been there? Maybe as a Christian you've lost the assurance and you need to get back there. You need to get back there and to realise as, as Fanny Crosby did all those years ago, you can only give yourself away to one who gave himself for you. There's a third truth here, and we'll close with this, that Christ is the only mediator. This was meant to be the tie-in to the contrast of this morning. Rome presents many mediators. She presents the saints and the, the fathers who have gone on before and and she teaches her people to pray to them. And there's a whole legion of saints that they pray to to get X, Y, or Z. Some of them have been made redundant because they weren't doing their work according to Roman, Roman Catholicism. <coughs> she presents Mary as a co-redemptious with Christ. And if you don't go through the gate of Mary, you'll not get into heaven. Dear brethren and sisters, such a fraud has been uh, carried on through the ages and has darkened the minds of, of multitudes across the world tonight. Christ is the sole mediator. Nobody else. A mediator is somebody who, who intercedes on behalf of people who are alienated. And so we have a holy God. And because of man's sin. He is alienated from man. And there is a great divide. And it was only Jesus who could come. And bridge that divide. And bridge that gulf. Because he was God and man. In two distinct persons. 
and two distinct natures in one person forever. Concerning his mediation, Hebrews 7.25 tells us, He ever liveth to make intercession for them. I think that's wonderful. He is always making intercession for his people. He is making intercession by the merits of his atoning work. Because his work is of eternal value. The blood will never lose its power. And it will never lose its value. And it speaks in high heaven for our souls tonight. It is speaking for us. It's interceding for us tonight. And when the devil comes and seeks to undermine you and, and seeks to cast you down, and Satan will always seek to put you down, you just remind yourself, well, there's somebody else interceding for me. At God's right hand, it's the Son of God himself, because he ever liveth to make intercession for them, his people, his blood-marked people. He's interceding for them. Do we, we do not need earthly priests our bishops, our archbishops, our popes, our moderators, our ministers. Our mediator is Christ and Christ alone. John wrote in 1 John 2 verse 1 and 2, If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That word advocate is our word here for lawyer or someone who represents us. We have an advocate in heaven. And he's pleading for us. And so strong is his case. So strong is the case that Jesus brings at the Father's right hand that the devil himself couldn't bring a counter charge. We read in Romans 8 and 38, Who is he that condemneth? Of course the devil would condemn us. Didn't he have the audacity to go in before a God and, and tried to demean Job himself but it says who is he that condemneth it is Christ that died yea rather that is risen again who is even at the right hand of God who also maketh intercession for us the devil can't condemn you because Jesus interceding for you he is raised to ensure our salvation to us has been imputed his righteousness he is the living embodiment of the righteousness that is ours. He was delivered for our offences, raised again for our justification. And his mediation ensures that our prayers are heard in heaven. Sometimes we come and we pray and we feel object failures as we come and pray. But the Lord Jesus is the great mediator. He takes our feeble, fumbling, stumbling words and he presents them perfect before God. What, what an encouragement that is to all of our hearts. Get into the prayer meeting, believer. Don't be afraid to lift your voice to God in prayer. Because Jesus is the great mediator. He takes those fumbling, stumbling words. Sometimes that we know even in, our, in and of ourselves. We know what we're saying in our hearts. But they just seem so incon incoherent when they come out of our lips. But Jesus takes them. And through his mediation, he presents them absolutely faultless and flawless before the Father's throne. As New Testament priests, you and I, we're called to offer spiritual sacrifice. What's the sacrifice we offer? Our own lives. 
We're to offer our own lives. We're called to offer up the sacrifice of praise. We're called to commit to the body of Christ. That little word today is a word that many Christians are nearly afraid to take upon their lips. Commitment. I'll commit to it. I'll sign up. I'll promise I'll be there. Barring the second advent or I'll be struck down, I'll be there. That's what makes us priests unto God. The bedrock of the Protestant Reformation, it lay in this great truth, this solus Christus, Christ alone. I'm going to heaven tonight, not because it's Ian Horace and the session here and on alone, it's Ian Horace, the session plus the presbytery. Good as the session is, good as the presbytery is, they couldn't take me one step on the way to heaven. It's just Christ alone. He's good enough for you. He's good enough for me. Let's not be looking to add others onto it. It's all finished. It can't be undone. It can't be redone. All you have to do tonight is just to rest upon it and receive it into your heart and life. Christ, but Christ.